Section 35 of Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of the Court of Queen Elizabeth, Volumes 1 and 2, by Lucy Aiken. Chapter 21, 1587 and 1588, Part 2. In the games of chivalry, he bore off the prize of courage and dexterity from all his peers. The romantic band of night-tilters boasted of him as one of its brightest ornaments, and her majesty deigned to encourage his devotedness to her glory by an envied pledge of favour as he stood or kneeled before her she dropped her glove perhaps not undesignedly and on his picking it up graciously desired him to keep it he caused the trophy to be encircled with diamonds and ever after at all tilts and tourneys bore it conspicuously placed in front of his high-crowned hat but the emergencies of the year fifteen eighty eight summoned him to resign the fopperies of an antiquated knight-errantry for serious warfare and the exercise of genuine valour. Taking upon him the command of a ship, he joined the fleet appointed to hang upon the motions of the Spanish Armada and harass it in its progress up the British Channel, and on several occasions, especially in the last action off Calais, he signalised himself by uncommon exertions. In reward of his services, Her Majesty granted him her royal commission to pursue a voyage to the South Sea, which he had already projected. She even lent him for the occasion one of her own ships, thus encouraged he commenced that long series of naval enterprises which has given him an enduring name after two or three voyages he constantly declined her majesty's gracious offers of the loan of her ships because they were accompanied with the express condition that he should never lay any vessel of hers on board a spanish one lest both should be destroyed by fire such was the character of mingled penuriousness and timidity which pervaded the maritime policy of this great princess even after the defeat of the armada had demonstrated that ship for ship her navy might defy the world. At this period all attempts against the power and prosperity of Spain were naturally regarded with high favour and admiration, and it cannot be denied that in his long and hazardous expeditions the Earl of Cumberland evinced high courage, undaunted enterprise, and an extraordinary share of perseverance under repeated failures, disappointments, and hardships of every kind. It is also true that his vigorous attacks embarrassed extremely the intercourse of Spain with her colonies and besides the direct injury which they inflicted, compelled this power to incur an immense additional expense for the protection of her treasure-ships and settlements. But the benefit to England was comparatively trifling, and to the Earl himself, notwithstanding occasional captures of great value, his voyages were far from producing any lasting advantage. They scarcely repaid on the whole the cost of equipment, while the influx of sudden wealth with which they sometimes gratified him only ministered food to that magnificent profusion in which he finally squandered both his acquisitions and his patrimony. None of the liberal and enlightened views which had prompted the efforts of the great navigators of this and the preceding age appear to have had any share in the enterprises of the Earl of Cumberland. Even the thirst of martial glory seems in him to have been subordinate to the love of gain, and that appetite for rapine to which his loose and extravagant habits had given the force of a passion. He had formed, early in life, an attachment to the beautiful daughter of that worthy character and rare exemplar of old English hospitality, Sir William Halls, ancestor to the Earls of Clare of that surname. But her father, from a singular pride of independence, refused to listen to his proposals, saying, quote, that he would not have to stand cap in hand to his son-in-law. His daughter should marry a good gentleman with whom he might have society and friendship, end quote. Disappointed thus of the object of his affections, he matched himself with the daughter of the Earl of Bedford, a woman of merit, as it appears, but whom their mutual indifference precluded from exerting over him any salutary influence. As a husband, he proved both unfaithful and cruel, 
and separating himself after a few years from his countess on pretence of incompatibility of tempers he suffered her to pine not only in desertion but in poverty we shall hereafter have occasion to view this celebrated earl in the idly solemn personage of queen's champion meantime he must be dismissed with no more of applause than may be challenged by a character signally deficient in the guiding and restraining virtues and endowed with such a share only of the more active ones as served to render it conspicuous and glittering rather than truly and permanently illustrious henry earl of northumberland likewise joined the fleet on board a vessel hired by himself immediately after the fatal catastrophe of his father in fifteen eighty five this young nobleman anxious apparently to efface the stigma of popery and disaffection stamped by the rash attempts of his uncle and father on the gallant name of percy had seized the opportunity of embarking with leicester for the wars of the low countries he now sought distinction on another element and in a cause still nearer to the hearts of englishmen the conversion to protestantism and loyalty of the head of such a house could not but be regarded by elizabeth with feelings of peculiar complacency and in fifteen ninety three she was pleased to confer upon the earl the insignia of the garter he was present in sixteen o one at the siege of ostend where he considered himself as so much aggrieved by the conduct of sir francis vere that on the return of this officer to england he sent him a challenge during the decline of the queen's health northumberland was distinguished by the warmth with which he embraced the interests of the king of scots and he was the first privy councillor named by james on his accession to the english throne but the fate of his family seemed still to pursue him on some unsupported charges connected with the gunpowder plot he was stripped of all his offices heavily fined and sentenced to perpetual imprisonment the tardy mercy of the king procured however his release at the end of fifteen years and he spent the remnant of his life in tranquil and honourable retirement this unfortunate nobleman was a man of parts the abundant leisure for intellectual pursuits afforded by his long captivity was chiefly employed by him in the study of the mathematics including perhaps the occult sciences and as he was permitted to enjoy freely the conversation of such men of learning as he wished to assemble around him he became one of their most bountiful patrons thomas cecil eldest son of the lord treasurer formerly a volunteer in the expedition to scotland undertaken in favour of the regent murray and more recently appointed governor of the brill in consideration of his services in the war of flanders also embarked to repel the invaders as did robert his half-brother the afterwards celebrated secretary of state created earl of salisbury by james i robert cecil was deformed in his person of a feeble and sickly constitution and entirely devoted to the study of politics and nothing it is to be presumed but his steady determination of omitting no means of attracting to himself that royal favour which he contemplated as the instrument by which to work out his future fortunes could have engaged him in a service so repugnant to his habits and pursuits and for which the hand of nature herself had so evidently disabled him the earl of oxford in expiation perhaps of some of those violences of temper and irregularities of conduct by which he was perpetually offending the queen and obstructing his own advancement in the state equipped on this occasion a vessel which he commanded sir charles blount notwithstanding the narrowness of his present fortunes judged it incumbent on him to give a similar proof of attachment to his queen and country and the circumstance affords an occasion of introducing to the notice of the reader one of the brightest ornaments of the court of elizabeth this distinguished gentleman now in the twenty-fifth year of his age was the second son of james sixth lord mountjoy of the ancient norman name of le blonde corruptly written blount the family history might serve as a commentary on the reigning follies of the english court during two or three generations his grandfather a splendid courtier consumed his resources on the ostentatious equipage with which he attended to the french wars his master henry the eighth with whom he had the misfortune to be a favourite 
his father squandered a diminished patrimony still more absurdly in his search after the philosopher's stone and the ruin of the family was so consummated by the ill-timed prodigalities of his elder brother that when his death without children in fifteen ninety four transmitted the title of lord mountjoy to sir charles a thousand marks was the whole amount of the inheritance by which this honour was to be maintained it is needless to add that the younger brother's portion with which he set out in life was next to nothing having thus his own way to make he immediately after completing his education at oxford entered himself of the inner temple as meaning to pursue the profession of the law but fortune had ordained his destiny otherwise and being led by his curiosity to visit the court he there found quote, a pretty strange kind of admission end quote, which cannot be related with more vivacity than in the original words of naunton he was then much about twenty years of age of a brown hair a sweet face a most neat composure and tall in his person the queen was then at whitehall and at dinner whither he came to see the fashion of the court the queen had soon found him out and with a kind of an affected frown asked the lady carver who he was she answered she knew him not insomuch that inquiry was made from one to another who he might be till at length it was told the queen that he was brother to the lord william mountjoy this inquisition with the eye of majesty fixed upon him as she was wont to do to daunt men she knew not stirred the blood of this young gentleman insomuch as his colour went and came which the queen observing called him unto her and gave him her hand to kiss encouraging him with gracious words and new looks and so diverting her speech to the lords and ladies she said that she no sooner observed him but that she knew there was in him some noble blood with some other expressions of pity towards his house and then again demanding his name she said fail you not come to the court and i will bethink myself how to do you good and this was his inlet and the beginning of his grace it does not appear what boon the queen immediately bestowed upon her new courtier but he deserted the profession of the law sat in the parliaments of fifteen eighty five and fifteen eighty six as a representative of two different cornish boroughs received in the latter year the honour of knighthood and soon after his present expedition appeared considerable enough at court to provoke the hostility of the earl of essex himself raleigh now high in favour and invested with the offices of captain of the queen's guard and her lieutenant for cornwall had been actively engaged since the last year in training to arms the militia of that county he had also been employed as a member of the council of war in concerting the general plan of national defence but his ardent and adventurous valour prompted him to aid his country in her hour of trial on both elements and with hand as well as head throwing himself therefore into a vessel of his own which waited his orders he hastened to share in the discomfiture of her insulting foe but it would be endless to enumerate all who spontaneously came forward to partake the perils and the glory of this ever-memorable contest and the naval commanders of principal eminence have higher claims to our notice the dignity of lord high admiral customarily conferred on mere men of rank in whom not the slightest tincture of professional knowledge was required or expected at this critical juncture belonged to charles second lord howard of effingham of whom we have formerly spoken and who appears never in the whole course of his life to have been at sea but once before and that only on an occasion of ceremony he was every way an untried man and as yet distinguished for nothing except the accomplishments of a courtier but he exhibited on trial courage resolution and conduct an affability of manner which endeared him to the sailors and a prudent sense of his own inexperience which rendered him perfectly docile to the counsels of those excellent sea-officers by whom he had the good fortune to find himself surrounded he encouraged his crew and manifested his alacrity in the service by putting his own hand to the rope which was to tow his ship out of harbour and he afterwards gave proof of his good sense and his patriotism 
by his opposition to the orders which her majesty's excess of economy led her to issue on the first dispersion of the armada by a storm for laying up four of her largest ships earnestly requesting that he might be permitted to retain them at his own expense rather than the safety of the country should be risked by their dismissal john hawkins one of the ablest and most experienced seamen of the age was chiefly relied upon for the conduct of the main fleet in which he acted as vice-admiral for his good service he was knighted by the lord admiral on board his own ship immediately after the action when the like honour was bestowed on that eminent navigator frobisher who led into action the triumph one of the three first rates which were then all that the english navy could boast to the hero drake as rear-admiral a separate squadron was entrusted and it was by this division that the principal execution was done upon the discomfited armada as it fled in confusion before the valour of the english and the fury of their tempestuous seas an enormous galleon surrendered without firing a shot to the much smaller vessel of drake purely from the terror of his name whilst the lord admiral with the principal fleet stationed off plymouth prepared to engage the armada in its passage up the channel sir henry seymour youngest son of the protector was stationed with a smaller force partly english partly flemish off dunkirk for the purpose of intercepting the duke of parma who was lying with his veteran forces on the coast ready to embark and co-operate in the conquest of england in the midst of these naval preparations which happily sufficed in the event to frustrate entirely the designs of the enemy equal activity was exerted to place the land forces in a condition to dispute the soil against the finest troops and most consummate general of europe an army of reserve consisting of about thirty-six thousand men was drawn together for the defence of the queen's person and appointed to march towards any quarter in which the most pressing danger should manifest itself a smaller but probably better appointed force of twenty-three thousand was stationed in a camp near tilbury to protect the capital against which it was not doubted that the most formidable efforts of the enemy on making good his landing would be immediately directed owing to the long peace which the country had enjoyed england possessed at this juncture no general of reputation though doubtless a sufficiency of men of resolution and capacity whom a short experience of actual service would have matured into able officers under circumstances which afforded to the government so small a choice of men the respective appointments of arthur lord grey distinguished by the vigour which he had exerted in suppressing the last irish rebellion to the post of president of the council of war of lord hunsdon a brave soldier long practised in the desultory warfare of the northern border as well as in several regular campaigns against scotland to the command of the army of reserve and of the earl of essex a gallant youth who had fleshed his maiden sword and gained his spurs in the affair of zutphen to the post of general of the horse in the main army seemed to have merited the sanction of public approbation but the most strenuous defender of the measures of her majesty must have been staggered by her nomination of leicester the hated the disgraced the incapable leicester to the station of highest honour danger and importance that of commander-in-chief of the army at tilbury military experience indeed the favourite possessed in a higher degree than most of those to whom the defence of the country was now of necessity entrusted but of skill and conduct he had proved himself destitute even his personal courage was doubtful and his recent failures in holland must have inspired distrust in the bosom of every individual whether officer or private appointed to serve under him something must be allowed for the embarrassments of the time the deficiency of military talent the high rank of leicester in the service which forbade his employment in any inferior capacity but with all these palliations the nomination of such an antagonist to confront the duke of parma must eternally be regarded as the weakest act into which the prudence of elizabeth was ever betrayed by a blind and unaccountable partiality all these preparations for defence being finally arranged 
her majesty resolved to visit in person the camp at tilbury for the purpose of encouraging her troops it had been a part of the commendation of elizabeth that in her public appearances of whatsoever nature no sovereign on record had acted the part so well or with such universal applause but on this memorable and momentous occasion when like a second Boadicea, armed for defence against the invader of her country she appeared at once the warrior and the queen the sacred feelings of the moment superior to all the artifices of regal dignity and the tricks of regal condescension inspired her with that impressive earnestness of look of words of gesture which alone is truly dignified and truly eloquent mounted on a noble charger with a general's truncheon in her hand a corslet of polished steel laced on over her magnificent apparel and a page in attendance bearing her white plumed helmet she rode bareheaded from rank to rank with a courageous deportment and smiling countenance and amid the affectionate plaudits and shouts of military ardour which burst from the animated and admiring soldiery she addressed them in the following short and spirited harangue Quote, my loving people we have been persuaded by some that are careful of our safety to take heed how we commit ourselves to armed multitudes for fear of treachery but assure you i do not desire to live to distrust my faithful and loving people let tyrants fear i have always so behaved myself that under god i have placed my chiefest strength and safeguard in the loyal hearts and good will of my subjects and therefore i am come amongst you at this time not as for my recreation or sport but being resolved in the midst and heat of the battle to live or die amongst you all to lay down for my god and for my kingdom and for my people my honour and my blood even in the dust i know i have but the body of a weak and feeble woman but i have the heart of a king and of a king of england too and think foul scorn that parma or spain or any prince of europe should dare to invade the borders of my realms to which rather than any dishonour should grow by me i myself will take up arms i myself will be your general judge and rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field i know already by your forwardness that you have deserved rewards and crowns and we do assure you on the word of a prince they shall be duly paid you in the meantime my lieutenant-general shall be in my stead than whom never prince commanded a more noble and worthy subject not doubting by your obedience to my general by your concord in the camp and your valour in the field we shall shortly have a famous victory over those enemies of my god of my kingdom and of my people the extraordinary reliance placed by the queen in this emergency upon the counsels of leicester encouraged the insatiable favourite to grasp at honour and authority still more exorbitant and he ventured to urge her majesty to invest him with the office of her lieutenant in england and ireland a dignity paramount to all other commands she had the weakness to comply and it is said that the patent was actually drawn out when the defeat of the armada by taking away all pretext for the creation of such an officer gave her leisure to attend to the earnest representations of hatton and burley on the impudence of conferring on any subject power so excessive and capable even in some instances of controlling her own prerogative on better consideration the project therefore was dropped it is foreign from the business of this work to detail the particulars of that signal victory obtained by english seamanship and english valour against the boasted armament of spain prodigiously superior as it was in every circumstance of force excepting the moral energies employed to wield it while the history of the year fifteen eighty eight in all its details must ever form a favourite chapter in the splendid tale of england's naval glory it will here suffice to mark the general results not a single spaniard set foot on english ground but as a prisoner one english vessel only and that of smaller size became the prize of the invaders the duke of parma did not venture to embark a man 
the king of scots standing firm to his alliance with his illustrious kinswoman afforded not the slightest succour to the spanish ships which the storms and the english drove in shattered plight upon his rugged coasts while the lord deputy of ireland caused to be butchered without remorse the crews of all the vessels wrecked upon that island in their disastrous circumnavigation of great britain so that not more than half of this vaunted invincible armada returned in safety to the ports of spain never in the records of history was the event of war on one side more entirely satisfactory and glorious on the other more deeply humiliating and utterly disgraceful philip did indeed support the credit of his personal character by the dignified composure with which he heard the tidings of this great disaster but it was out of his power to throw the slightest veil over the dishonour of the spanish arms or repair the total and final failure of the great popish cause by the english nation this signal discomfiture of its most dreaded and detested foe was hailed as the victory of protestant principles no less than of national independence and the tidings of the national deliverance were welcomed by all the reformed churches of europe with an ardour of joy and thankfulness proportioned to the intenseness of anxiety with which they had watched the event of a conflict where their own dearest interests were staked along with the existence of their best ally and firmest protector repeated thanksgivings were observed in london in commemoration of this great event on the anniversary of the queen's birth a general festival was proclaimed and celebrated with quote, sermons singings of psalms bonfires etc and on the following sunday her majesty went in state to st paul's magnificently attended by her nobles and great officers and borne along on a sumptuous chariot formed like a throne with four pillars supporting a canopy and drawn by a pair of white horses the streets through which she passed were hung with blue cloth in honour doubtless of the navy and the colours taken from the enemy were borne in triumph her majesty rewarded the lord admiral with a considerable pension and settled annuities on the wounded seamen and on some of the more necessitous among the officers the rest she honoured with much personal notice and many gracious terms of commendation which they were expected to receive in lieu of more substantial remuneration for parsimony the darling virtue of elizabeth was not forgotten even in her gratitude to the brave defenders of her country two medals were struck on this great occasion one representing a fleet retiring under full sail with the motto venit vidi fugi the other fireship scattering a fleet the motto dux femina facti a compliment to the queen who is said to have herself suggested the employment of these engines of destruction by which the armada suffered severely the intense interest in public events excited in every class by the threatened invasion of spain gave rise to the introduction in this country of one of the most important inventions of social life that of newspapers previously to this period all articles of intelligence had been circulated in manuscript and all political remarks which the government had found itself interested in addressing to the people had issued from the press in the shape of pamphlets of which many had been composed during the administration of burleigh either by himself or immediately under his direction but the peculiar convenience at such a juncture of uniting these two objects in a periodical publication becoming obvious to the ministry there appeared some time in the month of april fifteen eighty eight the first number of the english mercury a paper resembling the present london gazette which must have come out almost daily since number fifty the earliest specimen of the work now extant is dated july twenty third of the same year this interesting relic is preserved in the british museum in the midst of the public rejoicings an event occurred which in whatever manner it might be felt by elizabeth herself certainly cast no damp on the spirits of the nation at large the death of leicester after frequent notices of this celebrated favourite contained in the foregoing pages a formal delineation of his character is unnecessary a few traits may however be added 
Speaking of his letters and public papers, Naunton says, quote, I never yet saw a style or phrase more seeming religious and fuller of the streams of devotion, end quote and notwithstanding the charge of hypocrisy on this head usually brought against leicester in the most unqualified terms many reasons might induce us to believe his religious faith sincere and his attachment for certain schemes of doctrine zealous on no other supposition does it appear possible to account for that steady patronage of the puritanical party so odious to his mistress which gave on some occasions such important advantages over him to his adversary hatton the only minister of elizabeth who appears to have aimed at the character of a high church of england man the circumstance also of his devoting during his lifetime a considerable sum of ready money which he could ill spare to the endowment of a hospital has much the air of an act of expiation prompted by religious fears as a statesman leicester appears to have displayed on some occasions considerable acuteness and penetration but in the higher kind of wisdom he was utterly deficient his moral insensibility sometimes caused him to offer to his sovereign the most pernicious counsels and had not the superior rectitude of burleigh's judgment interposed his influence might have inflicted still deeper wounds on the honour of the queen and the prosperity of the nation towards his own friends and adherents he is said to have been a religious observer of his promises a virtue very remarkable in such a man in the midst of that profusion which rendered him rapacious he was capable of acts of real generosity and both soldiers and scholars tasted largely of his bounty that he was guilty of many detestable acts of oppression and pursued with secret and unrelenting vengeance such as offended his arrogance by any failure in the servile homage which he made it his glory to exact are charges proved by undeniable facts but it has already been observed that the more atrocious of the crimes popularly imputed to him remain and must ever remain matters of suspicion rather than proof his conduct during the younger part of life was scandalously licentious later he became says camden uxorious to excess in the early days of his favour with the queen her profuse donations had gratified his cupidity and displayed the fondness of her attachment but at a later period the stream of her bounty ran low and following the natural bent of her disposition or complying with the necessity of her affairs she compelled him to mortgage to her his barony of denbigh for the expenses of his last expedition to holland immediately after his death she also caused his effects to be sold by auction for the satisfaction of certain demands of her treasury from these circumstances it may probably be inferred that the influence which leicester still retained over her was secured rather by the chain of habit than the tie of affection and after the first shock of final separation from him whom she had so long loved and trusted it was not improbable that she might contemplate the event with a feeling somewhat akin to that of deliverance from a yoke under which her haughty spirit had repined without the courage to resist leicester died beyond all doubt of a fever but so reluctant were the prejudices of that age to dismiss any eminent person by the ordinary roads of mortality that it was judged necessary to take examinations before the privy council respecting certain magical practices said to have been employed against his life the son of sir james croft controller of the household made no scruple to confess that he had consulted an adept of the name of smith to learn who were his father's enemies in the council that smith mentioned the earl of leicester and that a little while after flirting with his thumbs he exclaimed alluding to this nobleman's cognizance quote, the bear is bound to the stake end quote, and again that nothing could now save him but as it might after all have been difficult to show in what manner the flirting of a thumb in london could have exerted a fatal power over the life of the earl at kenilworth the adept seems to have escaped unpunished notwithstanding the accidental fulfilment of his denunciations end of section thirty five